Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Never apologize, never explain. It's a maxim attributed to many politicians over the years, but not one we abide by on politics on the couch. So first, here's an apology. Sorry there hasn't been a podcast episode for a while. Thanks to everyone who's been asking. It's reassuring to know the audience is still there and kind of embarrassing that we don't serve it as often as we'd like. And then the explanation, or flimsy excuse actually. Phil and I have been a bit busy doing other stuff, as you'll hear in his bonus bit of couch chat. Yes, what you're about to hear is a conversation between me, I'm Raphael Baer, if that wasn't clear already, and Phil Berman, producer of Politics on the Couch, recorded at the start of a meeting we had to talk about, well, Politics on the Couch. It had been a while. We had some catching up to do, and on the off chance that us catching up about the general state of politics and what's on our minds might contain something useful for podcasting purposes, we hit the record button. Now we're well aware that there is no shortage of podcasts containing two blokes babbling on about politics. Really no shortage at all. A veritable glut, in fact. But as Phil pointed out, we were definitely two blokes babbling on about politics in a podcast before it went commercial. So think of this as one of those bootleg recordings of an indie band in a room above a pub and not one of your stadium rock big name podcasts. Great though those are, good luck to them. Anyway, we chatted about Phil's Twitter fast, the changing mood in Westminster as Tories start to give up hope, the paradox that elections can be essential structures of democracy and showcases of democracy at its worst, and, speaking of things at their worst, we talked a little bit about GB News. Loads of other stuff too. At some point we stopped recording because we needed to talk about all the episodes of Politics on the Couch we're planning to do and we wouldn't want to spoil the surprise. So think of this as dusting off the couch in anticipation of some more politics and psychology sessions in the run-up to the next election. And thanks for listening. I've taken a, an almost complete break from Twitter. Oh really? Interesting. I'd like to, I should say I've noticed, but I actually, I've been a bit sporadic in my Twitter use as well. I tried threads. I'm finding threads not quite satisfying. Yeah. So it's a bit of a cliche, but there's a, there's the correlation between the less time on Twitter, the happier I am. Yeah. And the more, and the other obvious observation is how puerile and how ridiculous all the arguments and conversations tend to be when you've been off it for a while. You're like, really? Are people really arguing about that still? 
Correct. Yeah, I absolutely agree. In fact, it may surprise you to know that there is a deal with this in a book recently published. <laughs> okay, I don't want to mention the book. No, the, um, as you all know well. 49, 49 seconds <laughs> it took you to mention the book. The, you know, as I say in the book, which and I promise that's the last time I'm going to mention the book, something that you know will almost certainly make you angry. And, uh, you know, why would you do it? Why would I stop saying, here's, the, here's this pill, Phil, take it. And what will happen is you'll feel really angry about the state of the world, angry and slightly impotent at the same time and slightly frustrated. And you'll want to join the anger whilst also knowing that it's not going to make anything better. Why would you subject yourself to that experience voluntarily? It's amazing. Yeah, but you keep coming back for more, don't you? Not you personally. Well, maybe you personally. Well, I do a bit, yeah. I can't, yeah. And uh, obviously, present company accepted. There are a lot of um, a lot of big egos on there, aren't there? Well, the interesting thing is the, the the question that I always have to keep asking myself in relation to this because I do, you know, I'm, I'm quite disciplined, you know, not on the weekends, not getting involved in Twitter spats, but I do look at it relatively regularly when I'm in work mode. I tell myself that. Unfortunately, because it is part of the mechanism that defines the narrative, I have to be a bit aware of what's going on there. And I, you know, while also trying to keep a critical distance from it. And then the question is, two questions arise from that. One, is that even true? And second, even if it is true, are you still just polluting your judgment and your sort of cognitive appraisal of what's really important by exactly as you describe? Even being aware of the most pointless, futile, childish debates that go on there. If it's big enough, you'll find out soon enough. Like if there's an earthquake, you'll feel it. You don't need to be on Twitter to go, oh, there's an earthquake. Okay, so I'm going to test your theory now. Uh, I've been off Twitter for, I, okay, I occasionally go on there, but I've been off it for about a month to six weeks, okay? What's changed in British politics in that six weeks that I would have understood a lot better had I been on Twitter, um, the, you know, constantly the last six weeks? That's a very good question. And I'm, I'm prepared to say the answer is almost certainly <laughs> nothing. The harder test would be, is there a story? Is there a news event that might be significant? It might pass you by because you didn't see it on Twitter. So, you know, I presume you know that Rishi Sunak slightly reneges on climate goals, for example. Yeah, I knew that. Yeah, yeah you're aware of that. I right, knew okay. that, but it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> and but but whereas you might not be aware that a one one opinion poll has shown that Rishi Sunak's popularity rating is ever so slightly up. But that's exactly something you don't need to know. <laughs> there. And isn't there someone who always says, never never look at one in isolation? Is yeah. There? Okay, so I've got another one. Is it, have you seen, here's an interesting one, Very because this is very salient. So if we do end up sending this conversation out to our listeners, this might be sometime in the past, because who knows how long it'll take to edit this. But have you seen the clip of Lawrence Fox being absolutely vile on GB News in a way that has led to him actually being suspended? from the broadcaster okay i'm going to make an admission here because it's like it's, it's a classic one isn't it where people say they've been off twitter but i did have a look yesterday to see what i was missing and so many people were talking about that clip that i felt compelled to see how bad was it but you found that you did find that from twitter i mean obviously yeah. it's, it's, you know, it, it, others will have alerted you to that but the the salience of that that is a very twitter event in my in the way i curate news i mean obviously it's, it matters a lot more than other things but it felt to me in in the way it was integrated into mm. the news cycle the, the flavor of it as a news event was very twitter but it didn't change my opinion of lawrence fox 
It didn't change my opinion of GB News. Are we allowed to say that GB News is a bit of a cesspool? First of all, we're allowed to say it because it's because it's self-evidently true. <laughs> and it's been like, it's been, I don't know what the Ofcom rules are, but it seems to have been breaking or infringing Ofcom rules or the rules that normatively the rules that Ofcom should have about news programmes for months and months and months and months. Com- complaints against it on that have been upheld, but also culturally, self-evidently, it is a flagrant defiance of the principles on which the Ofcom rules are written. And the thing that surprises me the most about that story is the final bit of it, which is that they've taken him off air. And I'm like, really? I thought, <laughs> I thought he was doing the, I thought he was doing the job. And Dan Wooten as well. Now we, we, we should probably not get too into the depth of this because this is where yeah. the invisible lawyer on my shoulder goes and say no more about any of these things. I think that if you work within political journalism, you're a news reporter, uh, these things are actually quite important because they are part of the, the daily news cycle. But if, but in terms of, you know, where Britain is going to be two or three years time, does it? Does it really make any difference? Well, that's really interesting. And this is something that I think is where it expands beyond the, just a conversation about okay. and social media, which we've spoken many times before. I think the current state and health or non-health of a very right-wing, slightly shock-jockey, American-style broadcast ecosystem in the UK, thanks to uh, Talk TV and GB News, and in a sort of feedback loop with the Mail and the Express and the Sun which have always been there, are going are going to be influential in an interesting way, particularly if the Tories lose the next election. Because if you think to back to sort of 1997 mm. and the run-up to that, I mean, obviously there are so many ways in which it's different, we know all that. But one of the interesting things is that the right-wing media basically had to sort of wake up and go, oh, dear, we've, we've lost the country a bit here. You know, even they got behind... In a Chris Morris and, way, like you lost the news. Yeah, they just went oh, maybe this country isn't the one that we've been telling it it should be for the last decade and we need to get with the programme. A bit, up to a point. And I'm obviously Blair and Brown courted Murdoch, so you know it's, it's much more complicated than that. But what I mean is the Tories after 1998 had to do eventually the sort of self-criticism and the appraisal that, that meant, okay, we, we, you know, we have to modernise. The, the, the Cameron modernisation impulse that... You know, first Michael Portillo flirted with a bit that emerged over time, Theresa May saying, oh dear, with a nasty party. I wonder whether it'll be harder for the Conservatives to do the equivalent thing, to go on the equivalent journey if they lose, because they will have this comfort, comforting bubble of a natcon mad right wing space that allows them to carry on feeling relevant and have a much bigger ecosystem to sustain themselves in. Does that make sense? I think it does. So what you're saying is that, that because of the uh, the sort of what they call the silo system of thinking that, you know, GB News is a bit of a norm and that, you know, they can say things on there and they're part of the normal kind of a discourse rather than kind of looking to try and get mainstream media more on side, they'll perhaps won't get so in, involved there and they'll be like thinking, oh, so what we, we GB News still support, you know, us, us, a sort of right wing like us. Yeah. And, and also cultivating fellow travelers and commentators and there'll be people who can still go on telly and um you know even if not that many people are watching people who will still be able to exist in their parallel universe where actually the problem was that the tories weren't right wing enough that sort of stuff do we know how many people actually watch gb news i've got no idea i saw something saying in terms of 
that sort of rolling news channels it's now well established as a rival to bbc and sky in terms really? of actual yeah but that's but no one watches those things anyway those are the things you watch yeah. when you arrive at a hotel and it's the only channel that's on right <laughs> but in terms of people people actually watching actual things that people actually watch um with serious numbers it's it's yeah it's it's a minnow well i've just googled this and it says six hundred thousand people a day i'm shocked honestly but also, and then the little clips and the bits that they send out on the YouTube, that, you know, that could be a lot. I mean, this is the other, the, the, the opposite of what I've just said in a way. I mean, this is the interesting thing. You know, when Sunak did his slight reneagement on the climate stuff, I was having conversations with people who were quite worried that it would play a lot better than, for want of a better term, the Westminster Village and the liberal left voices on Twitter, because they're actually an awful lot of really quite net zero skeptic people out there and it it has some of this stuff has the potential to be a bit brexity in the sense of where oh, i hate all the terminology around this but where the sort of w1 thinks hmm. public opinion is and how many people there might really be out there who believe stuff that's not in that part of that consensus on climate uh, you know how many of them there are you, know, you you could you could be shocked you know it could be a big smarter move than some of us want it to be i don't know what the polls how, how have the polls reacted to um what sunak's been saying then around climate change the the the, the sensible people who follow opinion polls say it's too early to say and a, any movement you're seeing now it's um, I, I would say I mean, quickly, before you go into that i always hark back to the episode we did with karen stenner on the authoritarian personality of the voter and i always think that what she said rings true to me that there's always around about a third of the population who have the propensity to worry about normative threats i.e that um someone's coming along and they're going to take your way of life away and so i always think that any point that can be activated it that's why it never surprises me that whenever the conservatives are at their sort of lowest low they still always get about 26 27 don't they you know what i mean it doesn't sort of i mean in uh, notwithstanding with european elections which is a completely different matter but what i'm saying is that there's always that kind of sense that at any point you can really scare your sort of your a certain type of voter into being really worried that your culture's being taken away your way of life's being taken away, your yeah. car's being taken away everything's going everything's being taken away from you you can't live life as you really want to in britain anymore i think that's absolutely right and then that is the flaw um, to a certain vote, but also interestingly, I mean, I had a very revealing conversation with a moderate, sensible conservative MP not that long ago who will, for obvious reasons, because of what I'm about to say, <laughs> remain nameless. Um, we were talking about the, the, the tension between the campaign that the Tories probably will end up having to do as a core vote strategy just to limit the damage which is a very divisive culture war driven exactly as you described just try and get as many people to think uh lefty lawyer remainer keir starmer uh you know with his gaggle of road blocking extinction rebellion tree hugging eco terrorists who wouldn't know uh, you know who would basically ban top gear if they could are going to take away my Brexit and my and call my daughter a son and vice versa. And I don't like it and I don't want it. And I'm voting Tory, right? So that is, it's a terrible it's campaign in every single respect. Uh, it's a deviation from the truth and it will, could, it'll, it would massively backfire probably in the sense of handing a load of 
you know, giving Michael Gove's seat to the Lib Dems and all that sort of stuff. But there is a certain, if you play that tune the right way to some people, it, it, it kind of works and it might be the only thing that they've got. And this Conservative MP was sort of wincing as I described this. And I said, look, the, the thing is, what that raises, the challenge that raises to people like you, I was saying, is it's not, you know, can you claw back some support? Can Rishi Sunak maybe do something that actually deprives Keir Starmer of a majority? It's, would you want to live in a country in which that works? And look, the look this person gave me, look they gave me, uh, was one that couldn't honestly say, mm. yes, I'd be okay with that. The, the, the pro- problem with the people who think we might deserve to lose on the Tory side. Exactly, but it's so nihilistic. It's so cynical. It's so dishonest. It's just, and it's kind of, there's been lots of stuff around uh, in the news recently about news avoiders and, you know, the super distrusters, all that kind of stuff about, and I, I kind of, someone who's relatively interested in uh, current affairs and politics, I'm, I'm a bit. Oh, now I have to mention again. <laughs> you made me mention my book. I was trying not to, but this is actually trying to write my book about this. Okay, no, I'll move on. Let's forget, carry on. As you were saying, just open brackets by Raph's book, close brackets. It's like, why? It goes back to what I said before. It's like, why bother to listen to all these stupid Twitter debates about? Because it's all an artifice. It's all a device. That's all it is. We're, 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 we're being, sorry to borrow your phrase, but we're being gamed. We're just little kind of... Um, we're little commodities in all this stupid game, really, aren't we? So that sounds very negative. But you know what I mean? It's like... Yeah, that's that's what hypercynical is 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 how I describe it in the thing the the objects containing pages that shall not be named starting with the letter B. Um, the no, I don't know. I think there are two things going on here, right? There 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 are well, there are a number of things going on here. The sort of that what they'll say all sorts of crazy things that they feel will just try and move the dial one way or another, which is quite generic to a sort of fag end of an administration. Another though, I think, is very specific to this weird sort of economic and fiscal argument or avoidance of an argument that we're in where you have, it's so hard to have a conversation about the very big things that you would want to fix in the country, the very big challenges, when the two main parties have sort of agreed that just promising to spend money to fix them is not available. And so but almost by definition, you're then left with either the stuff that Sunak does, like, well, I'm going to replace the A-levels with the baccalaureate, mm. which might or might not be a good idea, yeah. but it's really not that interesting or an issue. Hire new teachers, because guess what? Money. Um, or you get attention or you do the Suella Braverman stuff and you say there are loads of refugees all pretending to be gay and they shouldn't be given asylum. It's just a lie and, you know, appalling in all sorts of ways. But so that, you know, what, what I find demoralising in that respect, is that we are now trapped in that until there is an election. And the question is, there, from that there follow two questions. One is, if that becomes the defining feature of a campaign, does the process of changing the government make it really even harder to govern the country? In which case, the thing that is the sort of flagship or the like the buttress of, of a democracy, which is the opportunity for peaceful regime change, also looks like the most degraded part of a democracy, because by doing it, you sort of spoil all the arguments and divide the country in ways that make it really hard to bring together again afterwards. That's why I find that this moment particularly depressing, because it's that weird, you know, it's anticipating an election that I think will could be really great in terms of we get to actually 
change the government and, and Rishi Sunak, whatever else his flaws might be, he's not going to stand in front of a garden centre in Slough and say, actually, I really won. If he loses, <laughs> he's not going to do the Donald Trump thing. He will go. And so the hooray for democracy, but also, oh God, democracy pollutes itself by the mechanism that is supposed to be the good thing about it. It's going to get a lot worse before it gets better, is what you're kind of saying, maybe? I think, yeah, I think you just said it substantially more efficiently than I did. My living's not made out of um, writing or, or doing podcasts about politics. So if I was to switch off and then just... Yet. If, it, if enough people share this podcast, that could change. Yeah. Listeners, okay. get the help fill out here and tell, tell other people about our podcast. In fact, it was a bit of a lie, actually. I've been doing another podcast about the concept of state capture, and uh, which is a very interesting um, idea. I'm not sure if it's now's the right time to actually unpack it. But it is also a lot to do with those institutions. So we think of them, we think of those institutions like parliamentary committees and watchdogs, and they're so boring and like, who knows what they really do. But actually, they're the things, they're the glue. What's fascinating about that, well, many things, but it is one of the hardest questions that comes at me when I've done events, you know, around the thing that can't be named, um, is this, you know, that finding the boundary between a an honest but quite bleak appraisal of the dysfunctionality of the institutions and the ways in which they catch particularly lobbying all these things that go on that mean that actually you know i suppose the short way well, way of saying what i'm trying to say is a lot of the external a lot of the manifestations of what's wrong with politics looks exactly the way the conspiracy mm. theorists describe it like they're just to capture the democracy really not functioning being a bit of a sham but it's not a vast conspiracy so that the issue is you know where that analysis goes wrong or becomes counterproductive is because people start finding they're pointing who's to blame and joining all the dots that sense of that fine line between saying don't despair of democracy it's all we've got we have to make it work without sounding like a kind of Pollyanna-ish, hopeless optimistic saying, actually, it's all fine. At least it's not Russia. Mm. At least it's not totally failed state in, a, in an advanced stage of civil war. And getting that balance right is, has, I found, very difficult. I was talking to a professor on this exact topic um, a couple of weeks ago, and, and there's always the danger of where you use certain terminology to describe the way our state works. And you say, well, that's a bit like a kind of authoritarian regime. And they're like, oh, so what you're saying is you're saying that Sunak's just as bad as Putin. Now you go, no, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that if you look at the way in which um, the executive works and has so much power and has very, you know, few uh, checks and balances, um, you know, the way in which Johnson worked, um, oh, God, I can't remember the name of the guy now. So many of them. The one who there was going to be a vote on him and then he said, oh, we don't need to vote to get rid of him. And then they changed it. Oh, with the lobbying um, scandal. Yeah. Those are the little things which actually keep a check on power in Parliament. I'm trying to, I'm looking up the guy's name because it's really annoying me. I've forgotten his name too. There's been so many scandals, hasn't there? I know. It's amazing, isn't it? The sort of concatenation of scandalous things. And I suppose going back to the, the earlier point is that democracy is a organic, living, breathing being which has to be renewed every day. You know, you can't just say, oh, we, we live in a democracy, so everything's okay. But it actually has to be kind of um, reinforced and, and, and lived every day for it to actually to continue working, which is something that we kind of forget because people make it as a statement of a fact that we are living in a democracy. But certain elements of it are a bit of a veneer sometimes. So I sound like a conspiracy theorist by saying that. 
No, no, I don't think because the, 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 there is that exactly that tension between having to have a certain amount of confidence and faith that the culture of a democracy uh, is resilient because in, institutions alone can't do it. Mm. Stalin constitution of the 1930s mm. guaranteed freedom of assembly, uh, freedom of political parties and free speech and, and self-evidently it didn't have. I mean, North Korea has a constitution. Um, so, you know, no, just saying, you know, reform institutions, change the laws doesn't get you a vibrant democratic culture. But on the other hand, we've clearly demonstrated in this country over the last few years that a system that says if people go to the right kind of school and have the right kind of education and are generally in the term good chaps, they can be trusted to mm. know where the parameters are and you don't have to have fixed rules. I mean, and that point, I thought it was very interesting, you know, as you say that, you know, when you say this person is behaving in a way that seems authoritarian and someone goes, oh, well, you've just, you know, compare everyone to the Third Reich, then you don't have, you can't have proper argument mm. and this, whatever their law is on the internet, the argument's lost as soon as someone's... Godwin's law. Godwin's law, thank you. And all that. And But you have to be able to tread between saying that there are styles of government and bad habits that we reject because they are analogous to the very worst things that happen, but they don't necessarily mean we're always on a slippery slope. That every you know, that when Boris Johnson, so a classic example is Johnson proroguing a parliament, you know, the illegal proroguing. That was that demonstrated kind of a habit of mind and an approach to government that was you know kind of obviously authoritarian because he basically said, "I want yeah. to dissolve parliament because it's not going to do what I want." But it doesn't necessarily mean that you could then immediately hear the sort of the sound of jackboots on cobblestones echoing around the corner and the whole of British democracy was about to sink into the mire. And and getting that 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 balance right, I think it is is really hard to understand like for why it's intrinsically wrong to behave certain ways because of the health of democracy, without saying this problem that we've identified is literally a reenactment of the worst thing that happened in the 1930s. It's clearly not that, but also, you know, it's bad because of that, or that is the evidence that is relevant for why it's bad. Do you see what I mean? And I, I find that, I think it's very difficult, navig they're, they're very difficult lines to navigate. Well, you've just reminded me, because you said that you used the term a slippery slope, and then it just reminded me that there is actually a term, and, term for that, which one of our previous guests, Meg Russell, mentioned from the Constitution Union, which is a democratic backsliding down the slippery slope. See what I did there? I like and, it. And um, it is a process, not an event as such. I mean, the proguing was an event, but what I'm saying is it's a kind of, it's a move towards um, a different way of government. But the other thing about democracy is there's, everyone thinks of democracy as one singular concept, but ultimately there's so many different forms of democracy. There's so many different types from your representative to your constitutional, et cetera, and different ways of doing it. So when you, when you boldly state, oh, we are living in a democracy, it, it kind of, it once again, it avoids those nuances around the different yeah. types and the styles and the ways of doing it, which, you know what? Well, this is. This is. Um, I was going to ask you a question about your book, and now we've gone off on a. This is. A, well, no, no, let me finish podcast. the thought because no, oh, no, all right, sorry. No, because I think what you said about yeah, the different styles of democracy, different yeah. modes, and representative mm. and direct, and all these mm. things, mm. and mm. and crucially, I think what additional to that is the thing that when people think what is the most instrumental, important feature of a democracy by which you know it as democracy is yeah it's elections but actually the rule of law is just as important and that's the harder bit for people to grasp i think and so what what made the um the prorogation thing so toxic you know he wasn't sort of yeah i mean when donald trump says i didn't lose the election actually i won and i've instructed and it always starts telling people count the votes differently so i've won like it's so obviously cheating like everyone gets you know who do and if they don't live everyone who doesn't live in a kind of weird QAnon bunker gets that that's wrong and you shouldn't do that in a democracy 
But, you know, when it's, for example, you know, Liz Truss as the Secretary of State for Justice and, and, and responsible basically for the judiciary, not being able to find the words to criticise a newspaper headline that accuses judges of being enemies of the people uh, and sort of sides with the sort of Brexit populist narrative that, well, basically judges shouldn't be beyond criticism because they are getting in the way of the will of the people. You know, that breach of essentially sort of her oath as attorney general or, or having that judicial role is a terrible affront to democracy, but at a level that's already quite arcane and isn't just like, I refuse to stand down, I cheated in the election. It's, you know, and, and I think it's the, this is interesting when you think about the, the, the threats and the failures of democracy actually in the US, but also in kind of Auburn's Hungary and in, in, in other places. It's that rule of law thing that feels to be m- more vulnerable than people carry on having elections of, you know, long after they've stopped really accepting that everyone is equal before the law, including, for example, the prime minister. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I was going to ask you a question about your book. To be also, we want to say something about where you've been, but that will be um, answered by my question. So you've been doing the paperback version, is that right? Yeah. I've just been, yeah, writing a new preface to the paperback. You may have been on the air, I don't know. Have you been um, appearing on other rival podcasts? Not much. (laughs) I had a really hard call. Actually, yesterday I recorded something which will probably be out by the time anyone listens to this, which is really intense. It was a Radio 3 thing called Free Thinking, and I was John Gray and a professor... Uh, from New York, whose name I've now forgotten, and it was all about philosophy, and it was really intense. <laughs> that sounds really. That sounds really interesting. It was quite interesting, but it was quite in, do you it, want it to remember in the, the deep end. Do you want to remember the name of the? Because it might sound a little bit rude if you if we put this yeah, out. Yeah, no, I will. Let's, let's go. And we'll, actually, let's, let's, let's put, you look up the name of that bloody MP. Right, Teresa Bejan, and she was she was in New York, but she's actually a professor of political theory at the University of Oxford. And mm. um, my my defence for having forgotten the name is because the the John Gray was very much the focus of the episode yeah. because he's got a new book about Hobbes uh, and the new Levi. John Gray, anyway, Thorstone. Is that my? Is that did he do a book called Thorstone? Uh, he's done lots of books and he's, he's deeply pessimistic books. about liberalism. And and we had anyway. It was a, it was it, it, it was intense in terms of having <laughs> to feel that I was needed to sound cogent and articulate in dispute with an actual philosopher uh, as opposed to just another journalist which is what i normally do <laughs> um, so it was quite good brain training um yeah. and uh, but other than that you are seeing where i've been and what i've been doing well there was a summer holiday i'm allowed to go on holiday but and then yeah but and and, and yeah with your paperback version mm. 
Um, have you changed your mind about anything that you wrote from the first, uh, for your, from the hardback? That's a good question. And at, that's what people risk, say when they, do, they don't want to answer a question. Yeah, I'm saying, <laughs> well, I can tell you, Phil. I think it'd be great. Well, I will, I will I've say. Always, I, a, good answer, a, good, a good title for a podcast would be, that's a good question. Yeah. I'm glad you asked me that, Phil. <laughs> glad you asked well, it. I can say. I'm glad you asked it. <laughs> uh, in all honesty, and, and that's another thing they say when they're about to tell a lie, isn't <laughs> it? Oh, no. It's <laughs> like, so honestly, mate. Okay. I'm not, not going to say a lie, but yeah. um, no, the, for the most part, I I found it very reassuring going through it that actually there wasn't stuff I thought oh man you called that completely wrong I, and I, I had I, I had been very careful not to get sucked into a commentary on the most recent events so you know a lot of it is you know analysis going back to the you know, the nineties and the roots of you know, how we got into mess we're in and earlier and so I wasn't that vulnerable to. You know, terrible, hideous, embarrassing refutation by events. You didn't uh, write, put anything about Liz Truss would make a fantastic prime minister. Mercifully not. And this sounds tremendously arrogant, and I'm and and immodest, or at least, and I don't mean, and I hope it's not. And I and I, but, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I do. wonder what you're going to say now. Um, you're the uh, you're but, the best you know, political writer ever ex- ever existed. You might very well say that. I feel like I can <laughs> comment. Um, no, no, that's just, just why, why is, how's this term, how's me plugging my book tending to me sound like an absolute tit? No, no, you, you, no you said this is going to sound arrogant. I should think of the most arrogant okay. thing you could say. Okay, um, I'm better better at football. <laughs> better than average. Than, than, what was I going to say? No, no, I was reassured. Yeah. I was reassured yeah. going through the book that actually I thought actually know what some of this stands up all right. So mm. what. I and there are actually the things that there's only so much change you're allowed to make because mm. they essentially the publisher said don't mess with the pagination if you start adding whole new bits then mm. it messes up the index it messes up the mm. pagination so it really was just a question of writing a new preface going mm. this, yeah this is the paperback and yeah some yeah we the main thing was is this going to be when the paperback comes out it's going to be facing right into an election which is very different and so what we actually wrote in the in the preface was really and this is what's present in my mind that point that we were just talking about a second ago this paradox that elections are the emblematic mainstay of democracy but have also become this awful showcase of the worst of democracy and mm. that so that paradox which wasn't really in the book because it was you know, at a top written you know there wasn't really an election so much in view in, when I was first writing it um so that's that's the main addition, mm. uh, and then other than that, there was a comma in a wrong place in a oh, footnote, God. and that really annoyed me. And I'm, I'm very ter- very glad to be to be able to to change that for the paperback. I'm terrible on commas. I wish there was a masterclass I could go on the comma, even though my wife is a uh, teacher's commas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't teach. She teaches teachers. Okay. Who who who, who teaches the teachers? Well, she does. Um, so, uh, emeritus yeah, anyway. professor of comma studies, <laughs> no, at the university no, no. of punctuation. <laughs> well, they Grammarly, Grammarly should have got hold of that. But question for you, this is something I've wondered about for a while. I should have Googled it or asked chat GPT. Is this but... going to be another opportunity for me to say that I write better than Ronaldo <laughs> takes free kicks or something? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't get that. Ronaldo takes free kicks. Is that a book? Is that a no. right? No. Oh, no. Sorry. And it's just words just came out of my mouth. Oh, right. <laughs> so your hardback came out in May. Paper, yeah. paper, oh, I just knocked my glass. And the paperback comes out in... When's it come out? 
Good question. Uh, okay. One for my publisher. It's a spring. Okay. I, I, ideally before the election. Before I'm the trying election. to like, I'd encourage you for listening to this publishers. Let's get this one out quite soon. If you can, okay. Please. There's two. There's two. There's yeah, two real in the spring, sort of in April, sp- April, May. Oh, that's okay. All right. Okay. We had sort of two or three questions rolled into one. Why don't um, books go straight to, to paperback in, in a good way? I don't mean that as a negative, not like straight to Netflix rather than go to cinema. And why do they do both versions of them? Why don't they just say, well, we're just going to do a, paper, a hardback and then they can produce the price of the hardback in a year's time or bring up the price of a paperback and just only have a paperback? What's the, what are the, what's the economics? What's the psychology of having a hardback and a paperback? It just seems very sort of um, it's old-fashioned. A, it's, it's a good question. And it's one that one of many, many features of the publishing industry that I have discovered having written a book. It's just weird. Yeah, <laughs> I don't okay. really understand. I want to interrogate too much. I mean, yeah, it, it's as far as I can tell, mm. It is publishing convention <laughs> as it's much convention. as anything else. Okay. I, I mean, I'm, I'm happy, I'll happily be corrected on that. You mm. know, and, and in theory, if no one buys the hardback, the publisher will go, well, let's not bother doing the paperback. Right, um, okay. So I'm, I'm flattered that enough people bought the hardback that they have publisher have said, excellent, good, now we will do the paperback. That so in itself sign, is, yeah. a, is a hurdle cleared. Mm. But why they don't just go straight to paperback, mm. uh, it seems to me to be, I think, a matter of that's the way the industry's always worked. Because n- generally not that many people buy hardback books. What else? We're supposed to be having a conversation. Yeah, we're supposed to have a conversation. Maybe we should. Oh, can I just one before we we end this little segment, which I think we should send out as an episode. I think it'd be quite entertaining. <laughs> but with a with a caveat, have you been following okay. very important discussion about the the obnoxious volume of of bro style two blokes jabbering podcasts, which we have just done? And so the only reservation I would have about putting this episode out or this conversation we've just had out as a podcast would be: Is it a terrible cliche that here we are two middle-aged centrist dads yabbering on on the uncertainty that there is a, a, a mood abroad that there's far too many podcasts that sound like that ours okay. is unique obviously in many ways but can I put, also can, there are too I, many of those can i push back on that on a few, few, few reasons okay so um there are i think there are too many blokey podcasts giving out advice so ours is ours is ours is not really one of those kind of um self-helpy type podcasts um, Although you won't regret buying my book, by the way. That's, that's advice. Fifty <laughs> percent of this podcast has not been about um, uh, promotional publicity, so you know, in that sense, um, it's not necessarily uh, like all the other bro ones. And also, we started just before the explosion, I would say. Yep. So we're allowed. To, we started in we were early adopters of the two blokes wittering on back in March, April, twenty twenty. I think if we if we just started and this was our first podcast, we're not going to name names, but we did get a bit of a dodgy review, didn't we, once? Because we did exactly this for a podcast. Oh, you're right. Yes, oh, that's true. God. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, not, for being it's, it's, sort it's, of a bit a bit casual, yeah. a bit yeah. unprofessional. Whereas, in fact, we were pioneering the podcast mm. idiom, I think is what's yeah. actually going on there. Yeah. Plus, putting my all right hat on for a moment, yeah. I should never forget. You like even that. own that hat? <laughs> I do. I know the voice. I, can, I, I, I sometimes do it in a kind of jokey way with people, friends, and they don't always get it. I go, like, I'm never going to apologize for being a bloke. Okay. You know, <laughs> I'm a bl- I'll say what's on my mind. It's, free, it's a free country. I'll say whatever I think, you know, because my opinion is as valid as anyone else's opinion type of uh, shtick, if that's yeah. all right. So anyway, let's not, let's I might not just um, cut that. Just let, let's just put on that, just that clip of what you just said there, that one line <laughs> and put that out. And, and just to make sure that no one listens to our podcast. Every I'm a bloke. I, never have <laughs> I'm to a bloke. I can say whatever I want. <laughs> and, um, Owen Patterson. 
Speaking of blokes with strong oh. opinions, he's the guy. And the reason it took t- taken me so long to find mm. that is partly because I got distracted and didn't, and I was trying to have a conversation with you. But also, if you Google, mm. um, you know, lobbying scandal, Boris Johnson, Parliament, Brexit, mm. you get so many things that he did. And there are so many, there's literally, there are too many returns to the scandal. The, the only way to find the Owen Patterson specific one is to know his name to search for it. But eventually, I, because I knew that he was a former Northern Ireland secretary, I put mm. that into the search and then it comes up straight away. So Owen Good. Patterson was the guy we were looking for earlier. Good. And I, failed I forgot his name. I failed on that one because I was supposed to be searching for that. The reason... Raph and I were meeting up today to discuss a new series idea for Politics of the Couch, which we've absolutely um, failed to do. And I think it'd be way too meta to, <laughs> <laughs> to do that on the Especially because we've got previous on saying we're going to do things, yeah. putting them out on air and then not, yeah. and not, not exactly. honoring our promises. We are. So we should probably stop let's this pause podcast. It. Pause, yes. Yeah. Stop the hit. The pause button. And then let's, let's, let's take the rest of the conversation offline, I believe. Okay, then. Actually, just one last thought. Which oh, I think one, we should, one final one, thing. You know, so much of the political analysis and commentary is now predicated on the idea that they will lose. And I, mm. I'm, I, I defer to all the data scientists who say, look, no one comes back from where they've been to. Mm. You know, it could get close. You know, Keir Starmer could somehow fall short of majority. But basically, Starmer's going to be, the, mm. you know, barring the most extraordinary accident, Starmer's going to be the next mm. prime minister. Um, but if that, if somehow, it, you know, we reach February 2025 and mm. beyond the last point, from, wait a minute, don't, wait a minute, I thought it's... And no, it has to be, it could, oh, yeah, it can God. go to January 2024. No, you really despair. I, it, it won't, it'll be next year sometime. But oh. if we get to 2025 and somehow we've still got Conservative government, it will be very hard to have confidence in the capacity of British politics to renew itself through democratic means. I'm not saying I would then go and like set fire to stuff and become mm. an extra parliamentary radical, but it, I, I am... What what optimism and confidence I have still invested in the political system of this country rests quite strongly now on the belief that there will be peaceful regime change next year. And if there's not, I, I, I honestly don't know what I'll do apart from the definite. And then the preface to the third edition of the book would be very, very different. Oh, you've made me feel down now. Oh, sorry. But it won't be fine. Of course, of course, it's always going to lose. Tell me that everything's going to be all right. Hey, no, do you know what? I tell you one thing. There's one, something that's changed that you won't get on Twitter and that uh, I didn't only really appreciate from going back into Parliament for the first time in quite a long time uh, is the body language has completely changed now. And that's uh, since some and Tory MPs will say, they've said it to me, that they just sort of know now that they've lost. And the Labour people, they start to say when, not if, now mm. a bit more. And actually said to someone in Keir Starmer's team, it's like, you, know, you realise your people are saying when, not if. And this person mm. said, right, we've got to stop them doing that. They're not allowed to do that. <laughs> but that feeling that everyone sort of knows now mm. is quite strong, palpable in the way that it wasn't at the beginning of the summer. Yeah. You just reminded me of something. You know that famous Kinnock rally in Sheffield? Well, all right. I was, yeah. I was at that rally. No and, way. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was studying in Sheffield at the time. I was doing a journalism course. And um, this is this is before the days of Twitter and Facebook, mm. funnily enough. Uh, it was So you don't have a tweet to say, like, oh, he's blown it there. <laughs> no, because uh, so we were doing, uh, I was doing the NCTJ journalism course in Sheffield. And it was like part of the course. It's like, oh, well, it wasn't part of it, but everyone was interested in politics. And so as a group. We went down to the rally. I think was it somewhere near Meadow Hall or, or somewhere. Um, anyway, and it was great. It was fun. It was brilliant. And amongst my friends, colleagues who were on the course, 
no sense at all about this being like, oh, this is awful. He's blown it. It was like, yeah, it's a great event, fun, brilliant, wonderful, everything. And then, and then this whole, whole notion afterwards that he somehow blew it because of that. I've, I've always found that really weird, and um, I don't it's know. also not true. I mean, yeah. you know, obviously, you know, it, it's one of those things that got retrofitted onto the narrative mm. of "Oh dear, the hubris," and all yeah. people saw that and winced, and like, yeah, the, the, it would, you know, I think, as I understand it, the, the sort of polling autopsy mm. that showed that there were just a lot of more shy Tories than anyone had counted yeah. properly, and all that is was way, way more significant mm. than mm. You know, Neil Kinnock sounding yeah. a bit pompous. Uh, yeah. you know or, yeah, in Sheffield one day it had a fun uplifting like a concert feel to it but and I suppose and you thought things could only get better no. oh, it's five years too soon though oh, yeah, five years too soon I know <laughs> yeah so anyway right I'm gonna press right. stop now yeah press stop tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts good news ad free listening is available on Amazon music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your prime membership Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.